environment. Jamin. And I am an environmental scientist, Erin. And she, as always, is talking to us six hours from the future over in Scotland. Unless you're listening in Scotland, in which case you're listening to me six hours in the past. Ooh, um, time travel. And Erin uh, is also the resident scientist of the Jackson Cloud. If you're looking for an online cloud, I mean, an online church, especially in the midst of things like Corona, come check us out, jxncloud.com. And today's kind of a fun episode. We got Thanksgiving going on this week, and uh, being our resident scientist, Erin just thought she'd take us into the topics of of Thanksgiving food science of sorts. Yeah. That's a So, thing. like, food chemistry is actually a completely separate section of chemistry, so it's like the study of chemical of chemical processes and interactions in like biological and non-biological components of foods. Um, and like a very simple type of food chemistry that everyone does is baking. So you're using like chemicals like baking soda and baking powder and salt are chemicals and they have different reactions. Yeast causes a chemical reaction with different things. So like we're all doing a little bit of chemistry if we make like cupcakes or something. Um, but food chemists uh, dive a bit deeper into that, so they look at, like, meats and cheeses and how all of that interacts. Uh, and since, you know, a lot of us are cooking our own meals this, this year, uh, I was like, how would I make the most, like, the scientifically best, like, turkey, per se? So I looked up the two most important things to have at a Thanksgiving dinner. And, Jamin, you obviously know what those are. Uh, I'm guessing turkey and potatoes of yeah, various forms. Yeah, turkey and potatoes! America. I also looked up the best way to, like, store and eat your leftovers. So, we have, like, two very important things that you will have, and then uh, how you'll eat them later. Because, let's face it, like, we're all going to have leftovers. Even if you're going somewhere, your grandma will not let you go home without, like, a bag full of food. You think I can't eat 20 pounds of turkey in one day? Fun fact, I almost bought a 15-pound turkey at the grocery store the other day because of the metric system. (laughs) (laughs) I needed an 8-pound turkey, and the package said, feed 7 to 11 people, and my brain goes, that's 7 to 11 pounds, and it is not. (laughs) You didn't, like, pick it up and think, this seems like a lot. (laughs) I actually picked it up, put it in my cart, and I started walking up, and I was like, oh, I should double-check the weight. And then I looked at it, and I realized that it was in uh, kilograms and not pounds. So then I had to pull out my phone and look it up really quick, and I was like, "Mm, this is not what I need. And I put it back, and I got a better turkey. I will say, COVID has put a damper on turkey making for me, because every year, it's the one time where I pull out the, like, giant deep fryer bucket and nearly burn my house down every year. Oh, right, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've always enjoyed doing that, but the turkey has always been awful. And I finally figured out why. This could be food science, maybe. Oh. Is I, I would deep fry, I think, turkeys that are far too big because I was trying to feed so many people. And it's like by the time this whole thing is cooked accurately, it's also like burned most of it because it, it was too big to like keep yeah. well adjusted. That is entirely possible because you want it, it's poultry, so you want it to be cooked through. But it, the longer you have it in like a deep fryer, like the outsides are going to burn and become more crispy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because, uh, now for the last year or two, I've been smoking foods now that I have a smoker. Right. And I have learned, in my opinion, to make very good smoked turkey. Don't ask my wife. She doesn't like turkey enough to tell me if it's as good as I know it is. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I, I've learned how to make good smoked turkey. And now because <laughs> of COVID, I have no one to smoke a turkey for. <laughs> Your so children. I have to wait until COVID slows down to have a Friendsgiving Aww. to smoke well, a turkey for in the snow. <laughs> I've been doing Friendsgiving for the last four years, so I get it. I spatchcock my turkey myself because uh, I tend it cooks faster in the oven, and uh, I find the meat stays uh, moi more moist because it's not drying out because I'm not trying to heat a giant cavity inside Spatch. the turkey. Isn't is that when you like crack it in half or whatever? You remove the spine and you push yeah. down on the rib cage so it flattens the turkey. That's mm -hmm. where the name comes from. <laughs> anyway, scientifically, <laughs> I promise you, everyone, science will come in. So when you're creating, when you're making your turkey, and this probably is going to be a bit late because it's on a Wednesday, but. The best way to do a turkey is with a brine. Now, we've all heard of wet brines, but we actually, what the best thing you want to use here is a dry brine. And I'm going to tell you why. Because dry brines, have a, they make very crispy skin, and they concentrate your meaty flavor. And there's more science that we'll go into. However, wet brines, they actually add water to your meat. So the salt and wet brines causes turkey muscles to like suck up the outside water and expand. So what happens is the flavors that you're adding to your chicken, not chicken, your turkey, are actually diluted with the amount of water you've been adding. And then your skin, it can't get as crispy because it's very wet. So you want to do a dry brine. And this, this like dry brines are better for a couple of reasons. Um, the quickest being like the like osmosis. So osmosis is like the transfer of water molecules across a membrane. So osmosis will occur, occur on a dry brine, which is made with mostly salt. So it has like salt and different types of herbs. And water molecules will move from a less salty environment across the semipermeable membrane of the turkey skin to the saltier environment outside the bird. So this continues until the ratio of salt to water is equally balanced. So in science, we really like equilibrium. So this will occur when the salt on the outside is the same as the salt on the inside. So it wicks, starts to wick water out of the cells and you'll see like little droplets forming of moisture. You know, when, like when you leave out a cold glass of water and condensation starts to appear, it'll look similar to that. So you'll see like freshly salted meat. Although if you, over time, 
it will start to diffuse. So this is the difference. So osmosis is the salt and moisture moving, creating equilibrium. And then over time, diffusion will occur. So this is a slower process, which is why you need to do it like two days ahead of time. And this is when the salt evenly distributes itself inside the environment, creating a balance. So the membrane now has an equal amount of salts on the inside and outside. And now the salt within in the turkey meat will start to distribute itself equally within the, the meat. So instead of just like being right against the skin, it will be like far deeper in. So it takes like a chunk of time, but skin salt permeates into the tissue at a rate of like, let me look at my notes, one millimeter or about the width of a dime per hour. After the first few hours, it travels slowly, slower than that. <laughs> so the width of a dime per hour. So over the next two days, you're your turkey will be infused with like delicious herbs and salts and hum nom 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 nom. So the salt pushes into the turkey and it looses coiled strands of proteins and it causes the muscles to swell, pulling surface liquids back in. It prevents like proteins from clumping and squeezing out water molecules. So it basically breaks down those proteins and makes it tender. It tenderizes the meat. Okay, so you want your turkey to look like a can of pop. At first. Did yes. I do that right? <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm here for, everyone. Well, this is important because the meat will retain more liquid in the oven because it's more evenly distributed and it comes out juicy and tender. So instead of like, like pulling in moisture, like added moisture it's just distributing distributing moisture that already exists in it more evenly throughout the structure so you're not watering down any flavors you're just creating like bold flavors throughout the meat gotcha okay yeah all right all right so this is what we pay food scientists to tell us i mean food scientists <laughs> do a lot of things they make like uh, ice cream flavors <laughs> Like, no, I, honestly, no. if you're looking for a career path, look into that. <laughs> Food I mean, science, great thing. <laughs> it's got to be intense when you just, whenever I look at like pops or candy, I'm like, just didn't grow on a tree. Someone invented this. And it, <laughs> All right. it can't have been that simple. But um, yep. I, I actually learned uh, a lot when I, was learning to smoke foods. Mm -hmm. I read through uh, uh, Aaron Franklin's uh, book on just smoking food barbecue. So the most interesting cookbook ever. So there's like five recipes in the whole thing. And it's like right. 300 pages long. Cause all it is is like the science behind it. He's not even like a scientist. He just read up a lot about like, how do you get wood to, to catch on to, to food correctly without like oversaturating it. And he's like, you're actually looking for like, not green wood, green wood will like eventually catch fire and then implode. And <laughs> that is just like everything he's like looking for is very specific. He really just for the most part uses salt and pepper and his whole focus is on the science behind like what you need to do to, to wood, to make it cook, right. cook food in a way that it'll absorb it and not destroy it. So 
Needless really to say, I've learned a lot about food science this past year, but uh, not when it comes to to brining. I've always wanted to brine a bird, only because Bob's Burgers. When he did that father of the brine. <laughs> yeah, but like every Thanksgiving Bob's Burgers episode is like the greatest Bob's Burger episode ever. Like I'm always cracking up by the end of it. There's like a whole zombie turkey episode. There's a <laughs> the dawn of the pecking, I think is what it was called. And then oh, Bob yeah, always he starts talking to his spatulas about no, he's always talking to his birds like they're animate objects. Anyways, it. It, it, there's that whole episode where he's like, no, I, I have to brine this correctly, you know, and <laughs> we have to get home. I ordered a special bird and you only get these once a decade. It needs to be brined. It's, a, it's just something very classic about this. So anyways, <laughs> that made me want to brine something. But every time that I pull a turkey out, if I'm not doing my simple salt and pepper trick, I'm, I always want to like Cajun it. Cause I, sure. I just have this memory when I was a kid of my dad at a um at a Super Bowl uh uh tailgate party making some kind of Cajun turkey deep fried. Mm-hmm. And ever since I've wanted to recreate that and I've failed every time, so thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. But if you want to make a dry brine, like it does involve a little bit of math. So you want to calculate one and a half percent of your turkey's weight in salt. And I could Cajun brine or is brine specifically? No, a brine just requires you to have a, like you have to have salt and you can add other seasonings to it. So a brine just like starts with a salt base and then you add other seasonings to it because what you're doing is trying to, trying to create like i said that osmosis and diffusion of salt and flavoring throughout the turkey gotcha yeah and okay. like since you've been salting the skin and it's been drying it out like when you cook it in the oven it will crisp up more than if you use a wet brine because then the the skin will obviously be soggy so if you have a wet brine and you put a chicken in the oven it has to evaporate the water the liquid off the top of the skin before it begins to crisp do you know if like wet brine will only mess that up if it's a turkey or do other kinds of animals work? Cause I know uh, like so when I've watched people like brine and a whole hog, like mm-hmm. you just toss it in like a thing of ice water and then throw a ton of stuff in it. Right. Well, the, the theory remains the same. Well, the, not the theory, the um, like what's happening still remains the same. Like, like instead of, like pulling in moisture or redistributing moisture within itself it's pulling moisture in from the outside and it will dilute the flavor of the what you're you're flavoring that you're trying to add to it if you're doing an entire wet brine so skin different kinds of right it's more comes into play the bigger the animal is if you're doing just like a couple of chicken breasts fine what like do a wet brine all day but if you're doing like a larger like a whole bird you might want to consider doing a dry brine as opposed to a wet brine very well i just said brine a lot in the last like 10 minutes so i'm gonna move on to mashed potatoes now it's the one time a year where you get to use the word brine it's cool (laughs) 
So let's let's talk about potatoes, mashed potatoes. I so, don't know how to mash potatoes, just to be clear. So you're gonna have to start from scratch here. I hated everything you just said. Um, Every time I've tried to mash potatoes from an actual potato, I break the utensil I'm trying to mash them with. Your potatoes aren't cooked enough. I've point. tried. I've tried everything. Cooked them for twelve hours. They still don't. Mash. You've you've boiled potatoes for twelve hours and they haven't mashed. <laughs> sure. Do you hear yourself? Let's just go with my over embellishments. It's fine. Yeah. See what I mean? <laughs> like, like in theory, potatoes are easy. You boil potatoes. You mash. You add butter and cream. Whatever. It's done. But it's like a bit more difficult because potatoes have a lot of starch in them and starch is uh, notoriously difficult to control. So like potatoes during like soaking potatoes and cooking potatoes, the cells of potatoes break down. Now, if you remember, a potato is a plant. So plant cells have cell walls as opposed to animal cells, which have just a membrane. So there's a membrane contained within a cell wall. So like when you have onions and you want to like release a little bit of flavor, especially in like guacamole, you will crush them just a little bit to break the cell wall and release the flavor from the membrane. So the same principle applies here to a potato. So you're cook you when you're cooking them, you're breaking the walls of the potato, the cell walls down, and you're releasing starch at the same time. The amount of starch that you're releasing determines like the texture and consistency of your mashed potatoes. If you want creamy mashed potatoes, you need to get just enough starch out of the cells to create a little bit of texture, but not so much that they become gummy. So, you know, like people will whip them with a beater and if they over whip them, they're actually just like really sticky and like gluey to, e to each other. Delicious was the word you're looking for. That just means there's a lot of starch. If that's your preference, that's fine. However, if you want nice fluffy mashed potatoes, you need to minimize your starch as possible because it will weigh your potatoes down. So how do you make the best kind of potatoes? Well, there are three main things that you need to think about. Potato variety, mashing method, and like whether you rinse or soak them. So potato varieties, and I grew up on a farm, so this is me definitely like reaching into my past year. Potato varieties break down into three different types of varieties. High starch, medium starch, low starch. The low starch is often called like a waxy potato. So the classic like russet potato that you would buy at the grocery store is like high starch content, but is very soft and easy to mash. And since they don't require a lot of work to break down, the less starch is released in the process and it actually keeps your potatoes very light and airy. Yukon gold potatoes, however, are more of a medium starch at me, and they require a bit more work to release starch along the way. So this will lead us to a mashing method. Now there's a variety of methods to mash your potatoes. I personally, my favorite method of mashing is the potato masher that has the little like wave. You know what I mean? Mm, no. Most modern potato oh, yes, mashers yes. have like that <laughs> stupid grid to mash that's, with those are terrible that's what I always don't use break. them I always break don't those use ones. those don't use the grid ones use the wavy ones okay. in my opinion the grid ones are garbage toss them out your door um some people will use a, a ricer which is you basically like a pot and you put the potato in it it's basically like a garlic press for potatoes like you push it through and it pushes like little strands of potato out 
um, or like a food mill, it minimizes the amount of starch that you're releasing. Running potatoes through a food processor releases all of the starch, but it will make it very gluey. The same with an electric mixer, it whips the potatoes, but it could whip them a little too much. Gotcha. Uh, lastly, but just as important, is the soaking and rinsing process. So water literally washes off starch. But it also, that's why you don't rinse off your pasta after you cook it, because you need the starch on your pasta to adhere to the sauce that you've just made. If you rinse your pasta, it won't stick to the sauce. Well, did, that... did you just learn a lot about pasta in one, <laughs> one sentence? I mean, I usually eat my pasta just straight with salt, so I'm not usually attaching sauces to it. Okay, uh, I won't tell my friend who's Italian because I think that might kill her inside. However, I did if, create if a new pasta, sauce. If you if you make pasta, you rinse it. It rinses off of the starch, and that you need the starch to help it adhere to the pasta. You're talking um, about that weird film that's left in your noodle water. Is that starch? That, that is starch. Yes, like that okay. is like there's starch in your water. So people will sometimes preserve the potato water for like gravies and stuff because you can use it as a thickener. So yeah. soaking the potatoes for too long or cutting them too small before boiling will remove like all of the enzyme, leaving too much glue that can't be broken down. So you need, um, you need the pectin that's on enzymes that break down. So it's the nat pectin is the natural glue that holds like cells together. Um, so if you leave too much glue, the potatoes will never become soft no matter how long you boil them. So possibly you are either soaking potatoes too long ahead of time or cutting them too small before boiling them. Yeah, I, yeah, I just, now I just buy the like already sifted through potato things. I don't, I don't, what do you call that? Potato dust? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean the um, imitation potatoes? No, the, it, it's, it's real potatoes. It's just been chopped into dried... Like dried potato well, flakes. Yeah, flakes. That's the word I'm looking for. Some of them are imitation. Some of them will be real, but some of them are imitation. They're baked it potatoes. It says they're russet potatoes on it. I don't sure. want imitation potatoes. I like fake potatoes. My grandma at Thanksgiving, no joke, always has to make the fake potatoes with the flakes and the regular potatoes because we like them both and we demand her to make them both and she does because she's great and she loves us. Excellent. It's delightful. So anyway, back to potatoes. Even before you reach the point of boiling them and putting them in the water, simply by cutting them, you've changed them chemically. So controlling like the process as much as possible like is important because you can dramatically change the dish that you're making. Gotcha. So, what are the best potatoes for what type of mash? If you want a light, fluffy mashed potato, I would recommend high starch potatoes such as russet and Idaho potatoes. If you want like dense, creamy potatoes, medium starch potatoes, Yukon Gold, Bajinti, round white potatoes, um, like I think we have Piper Maris here in Scotland, solid. Potatoes that you should not use except for in niche applications like um, like French-style 
pomace puree puree or something where you make a puree out of like potatoes are the low starch waxy potatoes so those are like most of your fingerling varieties or the small red ones huckleberry potatoes don't use those they become gluey like almost automatically when you try to use them for mashing it is a nightmare interesting so yeah no i mean i i always just buy the russets so i haven't tried any other forms of <laughs> of stretchiness starchiness well do you like well now you know you have a variety of options here the little red ones did you mention those ones i don't know what they're called yeah those are waxy don't use them for mashed potatoes great okay. for roasting i was gonna say i think i've only ever roasted them but i, I don't know Honestly, russets and Idaho potato are a great, like, all-around potato. Like, you can use them for most anything. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, so, potatoes. What is the potato of Scotland really quick? What do you mean? There's Maris Piper potatoes. I don't know if I've ever heard of that. That's why. It, that's, it's, why a, it's a European variety. I just notice it because that's my maiden name and I get distracted by it at the grocery store all the time. And I go, we should buy these potatoes, but they're specifically made for like, like mashing. And sometimes we need them for other stuff. And shots like, don't use these potatoes. And I'm like, I want them. They have my name on them. <laughs> don't use them for everything. Nice. Um, <laughs> potato varieties. So let's talk about your leftovers. So you have, you've had Thanksgiving, you made delicious potatoes, nice crispy turkey. So what is the best way of making like leftovers or a Thanksgiving sandwich? Are you asking me or are you about to tell me? I'm about to tell you, but now I kind of want to know what you're going to say because it sounded like you had an answer. I, I don't think I do, so I'll, I'll wait for you. <laughs> well, okay, so you know how all of us, like, sneak into the fridge, like, late at night during, like, Christmas and Thanksgiving to eat, like, leftover ham or leftover turkey because it just tastes better? Sure, I guess. Like, why does it taste better? Like, do you ever think about that? Why does this taste better than on the same day? Like, cold still, though? Yeah, sometimes cold or actually when you reheat them. Like, ah. it just tastes, it tastes good. I like there's some some kinds of things I really like cold. There are very few things I've ever enjoyed reheated. I love cold macaroni and cheese. It's not any better. I just enjoy cold noodles. Um well when we pack our leftovers in the fridge, we mix all of all of our parts of like meat together, so like turkey skin and basting sauce like seep into like meat, redistributing even more spices and flavors that might not have penetrated into the like thicker cuts before cooking like your turkey so it makes them like more evenly flavored and coated like like coated with deliciousness than the turkey that you had that day so the difference becomes amplified when you reheat the turkey because obviously when you're throwing all that in and putting in the freezer all those fats will solidify but when you reheat it in some way those solidified fats will melt back into the meat making gotcha. it like chef's kiss Mwah, delicious so best like the best food for leftovers are usually those that contain like multiple ingredients and spices so like a plain slice of turkey when it's reheated will taste like no different but turkey covered in like 
broth or like herbs from the night before will taste very different the next day or more flavorful after it's reheated. So you can notice this a lot with like mashed potatoes, like cold mashed potatoes don't taste like great. And can, cause like there's a lot of like seasonings in them, but starches like are generally pretty bland out of the fridge. So, and that's because when you cook potatoes or dressing or whatever, the starches soften and the flavors, like what I've just said, seep through them. But when you refrigerate them, they retrograde and turn back into solid form. So retrodegradation is the process of starch molecules rearranging and realigning into a crystalline structure. And as this happens, the surrounding flavor compounds get trapped inside the crystals. So it's like when you're making, let's say you're making lemonade. You know, the best way to make lemonade is to heat up the water before you add the sugar, right? That way the sugar, when you add it, will actually dissolve and you'll have sugar throughout. Because if you don't do that, all of your sugar will end up at the bottom of your lemonade. And you'll have to mix it every time, like you go to pour some. Is that you're another like, rhetorical question? <laughs> you're looking at me like, that's not how I make lemonade. <laughs> I don't think I've ever made lemonade, so... What? Really? Yeah, yeah, you want you want to like create like a consistent mixture so you're melting things cuz when when it's cold it won't it won't dissolve into stuff. And the same thing occurs here. So like like starch molecules rearrange and become crystals and then it traps all that flavoring in the crystals. So when you reheat them, the crystals break down and melt redistributing flavors and that's why cold mashed potatoes or cold gravy in particular are not as flavorful as their heated initially heated or reheated counterparts like reheating melts the crystals and releases flavor and it makes them like taste delicious good to know next time yeah. i make lemonade i'll boil it <laughs> okay I always make it's like making a simple syrup is basically what it's called. I make a simple syrup the day before and then the next day I add the lemon because you don't want to add lemon to a hot because it will blanch the flavor and you won't get as much tartness from it. I feel like I just think about food too much now that I'm sitting here talking about it. Uh, we all think about this. <laughs> we just don't think of it in the same way. Like when I'm making when I'm making salsa I'm like okay jamin when you've held the food processor button down to the point that it looks a certain texture let go because if you keep going it will become of a different taste which in your mind is like that's molecular rearrangement of scientific proportions whereas well it's just the difference minds, between a solution and a suspension basically so a solution is like the particles are transparent, like you can see through them, it's all like dissolved and mixed into it, and a suspension would be more like a chunky salsa, like you can see the sizes and they it just kind of may look like cloudy or murky, but you can differentiate like what is there. Sure, but to you it's science, and to us, suspension bridges have nothing to do with it. <laughs> The suspension is a type of mixture, but okay. <laughs> sure. It's a kind of belief, if I remember right, or a sort of bridge. <laughs> oh, boy. This has gotten, I guess, I think, yeah, like science, like you can improve the flavor of things by thinking scientific concepts. Like as for your peak leftover window, 
bigger cuts will of meat will improve the flavor in the fridge after about 24 hours but if you've carved your turkey before storing it it will taste uh better in as little as 12. and that's why we all go snacking late at night or we eat ham in the car on the way home from grandma's okay i, I eat ham in the car yeah. on the way home from grandma's <laughs> it's delicious my, my family is not a big ham family so i think it's pretty much always been turkey if we're making a like a holiday oh, meal of sorts. Uh, I mean, ham's more of a, an Easter type quality, but I do like a good car ham. So that's me. <laughs> car ham. That'll be your <laughs> Christmas episode. The science of car ham. Uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, if you want your leftovers to be extra tender, you can pop them in the freezer instead of the fridge. So, like I said, when you freeze something, crystals form, and the crystals of ice are very pokey. And you literally poke through pieces of meat, and you break up the fibers. That way, when you thaw and reheat it, it makes it more tender. So, it's like a meat croissant. It has many layers. Don't, don't call things a meat croissant. <laughs> layers of flavor. Delicious. Meat croissant. <laughs> I mean, I'd eat it. Don't get me wrong, but... <laughs> <laughs> I want to hear those words together. All right. I'll take it back. Well, we've learned a lot about Thanksgiving food science. Are we missing any other food dishes you are going to science us on? Or uh, No, I just thought, you know, we'd cover two, like the big two, potatoes and turkey. And then, like, let's talk about leftovers because we're all going to be eating them. It's true. Best leftover ever. Are you landing on car ham? I do really like car ham. Yeah. Like I loved, I love leftover potatoes, but like there is nothing better than like ham, like on the way home when you're just like, you're a little hungry and you just want to nibble good stuff. It's good. My favorite, favorite cold leftovers ever, hands down, not even a contest is chicken shish kebab. Okay. That does sound good. Yeah, if you've grilled it in Italian dressing, there's just something about cold shish kebab that is almost better <laughs> than off of the grill. And it makes no sense to me. I'll never <laughs> understand it, but it's like eating grapes. I mean, if you just imagine like a vine with little pieces of cold shish kebab and you're just pulling it off and eating it and you can't stop. Right. That's, that's what it's like, man. That's the dream right there. <laughs> Look, you got car ham. I gotta talk about shish chicken shish kebab. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess that brings us to the end of a very curious episode of the air environment. You know, sometimes we talk about heavy stuff, sometimes we talk about like turkey. Like it's cool. It's all of a day's work of a the Jackson Cloud resident scientist taking us into all kinds of topics. So, uh, you, you can watch our podcasts often live on Facebook when we broadcast them, but you may be listening to this in the car right now via our audio portion uh, on uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. So, make sure you check it out. The Air Environment. You can learn more about this show and many others we provide at jacksoncloud.com. And with that, Aaron, final Thanksgiving words to people? Um, wait, 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 hold up. Are you allowed to do this? Do you even have Thanksgiving in Scotland? 
I literally took Thursday and Friday off from work. We don't have Thanksgiving, but I have Thanksgiving. Well, in my mind, obviously America is the one that has Thanksgiving because that's what Mm -hmm. the story is about. But I feel like Canada has Thanksgiving too. Canada has it. It's the first Monday in October. So you guys just, ah, screw it. We're not thankful for anything over here. <laughs> uh, no, no, they just don't have like a a November type holiday here. No. Gotcha. All right. Well, there you go. Uh, celebrate Thanksgiving where you're at. I know it's been a hard year, but be thankful for something if you can. And uh, if you can't think of anything, be thankful for Thanksgiving science. and all God's people said Amen Thank you.